for those of you that don't know me, my name is Brady. And if there's something that we say during our time of reflection in the Word, you want to talk afterwards, I just invite you to come and visit with me, okay? So uh, we've just begun a series. Uh, it will focus primarily in the book of Acts, and so you can turn there if you want. It's just bat- past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're in the latter part of your uh, Bibles, if you're not real familiar with it. And the, the name Acts... Uh, the fuller name, as we heard from Tim, was uh, Praxis Apostoloi, okay, translated into just Acts. And so, uh, so far we've had this title for our series, the title Praxis. I'm going to extend it a little bit. I'm going to call it Praxis, Studies in the Book of Acts, Living Out the Jesus Way. The word praxis, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, has to do with how a person or people implement an idea. How you take something that's a cognitive thing or a verbalized thing, and how you bring it down to street level and make it something you're walking out that the observing world can see in tangible ways. And so it's really in the book of Acts that we get to see the first followers of Jesus really putting into practice the way of Jesus. He said, come, follow me in my way, and here we see them living that out and beginning to make it tangible in the world to others. And so I want to start this morning where Tim started this couple weeks ago. I want to start in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Here, Luke, the author of this book, writes, In my former book, Theophilus, which would be a reference to the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Those were a name given to his first follower leader group by the Holy Spirit to the apostles which he had chosen. Uh, In our opening of the series, Tim pointed out that Luke has a phrase here, what Jesus began to do and to teach, and he tried to bring emphasis to our memory that, that this has the sense that it's the beginning of a thing, not the end of it. That Jesus, as it was put, there's more that Jesus intends to do and to teach. And so he asked us at the end to, to, to kind of think and, and, and put our minds to the work of saying, well, what do we think Jesus wants to continue to do and teach in our individual lives in the new year? And what do we think he wants to do and teach through us as a community collectively? And so, you know, being a, a, a good listener and uh, showing deference to my young brother, Tim, the teacher, I gave some thought to this. And I, and I thought, well, we, you know, what do I want to have happen in the next spin around the sun that I'm going to go in here, Lord willing, and I don't get hit by a truck or anything? Well, you know, I, some of them are general, but I, I really want the Lord to grow me to be wiser, I I hear that's something that's supposed to happen in old age, and so I would like to have that happen to me. Uh, I would like to be more helpful. I would like the Lord to teach me to be in every way more generous because of the enormous needs that exist in in the world all around me. Uh, I would like this spin around the sun to be a time where I would, as the Scripture says, make the best of every opportunity that's given to me day by day as we live this life of grace. I, want, I wrote that I wanted to grasp and embrace his mission more deeply, more joyfully, because I can be a bit of an Eeyore at times, uh, and more vigorously. 
In other words, this next year I'd like to grow up a bit more. I'd like to be a little more mature. And you know, the second part of the question, what do I want for Hillcrest? Well, I just decide I want all that for Hillcrest too. Of course, it's a little easier for what I want for me because I can just set goals and go for it, right? It's just me. It's the only person I have to really deal with. But when you talk about we, like so many of the songs did today, when you talk about us, it's a little bit more challenging. For Hillcrest as a community to be more authentic, to be more the real radical Jesus deal in the world, to be more impactful and more like him in word and deed, means that we have to have a shared mind, a shared vision, a shared sense of what he is continuing to want to teach and do in our world. And so one way I'd like you to think about this series in Acts, instead of Praxis Apostoloi, it would be Praxis Hillcrest. What does it mean for us to join this ongoing story and to live out the mission of Jesus? Well, of course, as I thought about that, it raises the inevitable question to be pondered by all of us, and that is, what are the fundamental aims, the fundamental motives that shaped Jesus' doing and teaching? If we're really going to be carrying on his work, then we need to understand it at its fundamental levels, and we need to have an agreement in our hearts and minds, yes, this is what the master is all about. And so I want to focus on one thing today, more uh, longer than the others. When I think of Jesus' ultimate kind of bottom line mission in our world during his time being with us in his body before he ascended into heaven, I think of three things. There are three things he said, and I think they are meant to reveal to us our bottom line as an individual Jesus person and as a community of his. And so, number one, Jesus' mission priority number one, he talks about it in John 17, verse 4, when he says, I have brought you glory, Father, on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Doing and teaching. But the the priority, the motivational, the underlying vision here of Jesus is to bring glory to the Creator Father. That what pushes Jesus through his life, and you hear this in other places if you go back and read the Gospels with an eye to this, that you find every word and every deed, all that he began to do and teach, was pressed by this desire that humanity would know God, and by knowing God would give him honor and would give him high regard and esteem and love. That we would move from a place of alienation and, and rebellion and disregard to a place of deep affection and love. Uh, One way I think you can really look at Jesus' life related to this idea of bringing glory to God and loving God is to, to understand that when we watch what he does and what he teaches, he's really an exposition for us. He's really a a living parable, a living out of the greatest of all commandments. Jesus says we are to love the Lord our God with all of our brains, all of our minds, all of our heart, our affections, all of our loyalty and physical actions, our strength. That we're to love God completely with our whole being. 
And so as we move forward and we look at the book of Acts, we need to remember that the backdrop for the apostles was that they had seen Jesus in this primary drive of his life to love God, his creator, not his creator, the creator, Father. Uh, the second priority that I want to touch on before we go to the longer one. Uh, Jesus makes it clear in Luke 19 and again in Matthew 20 and numerous other places that he came into our world to rescue humanity. That out of love for God, he becomes an exposition of the second great commandment that you are to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek out and to rescue the lost. Or in Matthew, I came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away my life, the ultimate act of serving love, in exchange for the many who are held hostage. Jesus says, I come, humanity is trapped they're, they're caught in the clutches of something, and I've come and to pay the price of their liberation, their freedom back to God. And so this second great motivation, the one that we sing about, we, we focus on regularly as well, is this reality that Jesus is on a rescue mission, rescuing us in order that he could reestablish us in the mind and heart and intent of God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I think this love for humanity is just an extension, in one sense, of his love for God. Because who is it that gives glory to God other than the person who's been set free from sin and death, and so they love God and can shout out in the congregation like we did today our thankfulness to God. I particularly got a, a blessing and chuckle out of it. I think it was probably Brother Phil who says that he thanked God that he made the heavens and the earth and... Me, you know, that sense of awe and joy that I'm alive in him. And so those two, you got to keep those in the background. That's just bedrock stuff about what the Lord's mission is about. And now I'd like to go and look at a third one. Mission priority number three, the creation of the ecclesia. We have to do Greek every once in a while. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 16, 18, when he says, I will build my ecclesia, which is translated into the English church, and the gates of Hades, the place of death, the place in the ancient world that was perceived to have gates, that once you went in, they snapped shut, and you were forever trapped in this place of, of, of death and decay. I will build my ecclesia, my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is how Jesus tells us that he is going to carry on his ongoing mission in the world of teaching and the acts that he does. Doing and teaching. Now, I don't know what you think would come to mind, but when I work with university students so much, I'm always trying to think, what would they think when they hear words, you know? If I'm just out in Red Square, what's the normal everyday American student when they hear the word church think? Or even, you know, what's the person who is, says, I'm a Jesus follower think when they hear the word church? 
I like the story about Ellie. She, she wanted to know what church was. I'd love to know what the answer was, right? It would be fun to say, how did you explain it to a young girl, you know, in her first time of asking? What comes to mind for you when you think of the word church? There are more answers, I suppose, than we can shake a stick at, and I'm not going to try to go through that. That would be tedious, to say the least. But here is our real challenge, I think, as we walk into 2015. The question that's most important is not what I think when I hear the word church. It's what the master meant when he said the word ecclesia. What is important isn't for what I feel about church, but it's what he feels about church. Because in the end, it's Jesus' vision that I want to have shape my vision. It's Jesus' heart and attitudes that I want to have shaping my attitudes and heart. And I believe that that's not just an I, that's a we calling, isn't it? That we would see and think, speak and act as he does in this idea of being the church. So that makes me realize I have to grasp Jesus' vision about the church. Now, for some of us who've been in the faith a long time, we go, oh, I've heard this stuff, and you're starting to doze off or wishing you could find your cell phone to you know, look like you're reading your scripture, but you're really checking out your Facebook or something. But, you know, there are times we sang today, uh, as we were singing, then there was a point right, that, that, that Carlos said, let's remind each other of fundamental realities, right? Good job, Carlo. He didn't know what I was speaking on, but good job. Okay, And we shouted out fundamental realities. It'd be fun to do that with the word church, but instead I'm just going to teach into it. Well, just in case somebody goes, huh? You know, by something we say. Okay, Well, the word, ekklesia, uh, in the broader Greek world, it had to do with, in the city-states, the Greek free city-states, the ekklesia was the citizen group of that city. It was a group who determined and gave guidance and, and worked to forward the mission and the purpose and the, and the, and the well-being of the city-state. And so it, it had to do with being a society, okay? An ecclesia was a society gathered together for a purpose. Uh, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, uh, which I gave you inadvertently in the notes to, to Bev, I gave you the LXX 70. Uh, it's short script for the Greek Old Testament. Okay, 70 translators of the, made the uh, Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And so the, when you read the Old Testament in Greek, and the scholars had to find a word to take the Hebrew word and move it into the Greek language, when they talked about the people of God, they used the word ekklesia. The ekklesia is the people of God. God in the Old Testament chooses a people group. And they are to be those who carry forth the word and the works of God. Right? They're to be a light to the nations. Declaring the goodness and the intent of God toward the nations. Now, Israel doesn't do that very well, to say the least, but that's who she was collectively. So when Jesus uses this term, it's just loaded with meaning. That in the New Testament, the ecclesia, it's not a building. 
although the church uses buildings, it's not an institution, a 5013C nonprofit corporation in Washington State, although the church wisely uses that. What the church is, is in fact, it's a people group. It's a new society. It's a new kind of nation. It's a new uh, kind of humanity that's in the world. It's the Jesus people. And it's both Jew and Gentile grafted together, St. Paul says, to form one new people group. And they have a work to do in the world. And it's this work to do, this praxis, this putting the idea into practice that we're going to chase after for a while this year. Well, that means then that Jesus' ecclesia can be understood in a couple of ways, besides just understanding the Greek word. It can be understood first in light of its relationship to him. Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, it, it's, a, it's an image. He, he's casting an image for us. You know, and <clears throat> Jesus and the New Testament writers loved metaphors. And so there's a whole bunch of metaphors. Are those up there? Yeah, they are. Okay? You know, we're his sheep. You know, you can all go, bah. You, know, you actually, I didn't mean it. You actually, you are a very responsive. That's creepy. I, boy, I don't, Lord, don't ask, don't have me ask him to do anything inappropriate or anything. You know, we're his sheep, and he is our shepherd. Uh, the scripture tells in Revelation that we're his bride. Try to get used to that, man. We're his bride, and he's the bridegroom. John 15, he says, "You are the branches that will bear much good fruit." Because I am the vine of life that feeds and nurtures you. And then Paul, doing the same kind of metaphorical thing, says, we're his body and he is the head. Uh, today, Carlos said, we're his family. There's all these metaphors of who we are. And they help us get our brains and our hearts around what does it mean to be part of the church? What does it mean to participate in the life of what Jesus is building? So who are we in Matthew 16, 18? Well, he says, I will build my church. So, bottom line, we collectively are his. We are his create, well, recreation, new creation in that sense. The creator God now is making a new people group that takes itself from all nations, people, tongues, and tribes, Jew and non-Jew, and puts them together. So I have to learn to get my mind in a way of thinking that we belong to him, and therefore the church which belongs to him is not mine. Sometimes when I go to conferences and stuff, I'll hear college pastors or church pastors say, well, my church this, or my church that. And I know it's just a way of talking. You know, we'll invite people, come to my church. That's okay. Just recognize, though, that it's an inappropriate way, in one sense, to talk about it. You don't go to church. You are the church. We would invite each other to come and join with us as the church. But you know how English language is. It doesn't work so well. So we need to be careful and never actually think that the church is mine. The church is his. I spoke one time in Lincoln, Nebraska, and the name of the church 
uh, community that uh, invited me was uh, a good friend of mine was pastoring there, and they had to pick a name for their community, so they called it His Place. I love that. It's His Place. And so i got to have my mind around that, because if I think that it's mine, I find it very easy for me to kind of become a social critic of it. You know, kind of an unspiritual critic instead of a prophetic voice of encouragement and right thinking. You know, we can judge the church, the community that Jesus is building on all kinds of mere personal whims and attitudes. We don't like this. We don't like that. Yada, yada. You know how it goes. I'm reading blogs on why people leave the church. And some of it is prophetically challenged, but a lot of it's just pathetic. Okay? Because they think it belongs to them. And they've lost vision for what Jesus is doing. But as I wrote up there for you, if I'm a part of his church, the church is the Lord's, then I can only be toward it what the master desires me for me to be. I need to learn to think, speak, act, and relate as I see the master speaking and doing. Challenge, don't you think? There's one of the challenges for you today. How does he think, and can we shape our lives to it? A second thing that I think we can uh, chew on just for a moment together is that not only does it belong to him, I will build my church, but he also gives us the mission here. Uh, in John 15, the mission was to bear much fruit. Uh, in in uh, Revelation, it's to be like a bride, pure and, and, and excited and joyful in love toward the, the bridegroom. Each metaphor carrying its own ideas. There's all kinds of metaphors about what our purpose is in the world. Uh, Matthew 5.13, <clears throat> the Master says, You are salt of the earth. That is, we savor and we prevent so much decay. We push against decay. They didn't have refrigerators, right? So they used salt. We're the sheep sent out in a world of wolves. Back to that sheep picture. Okay? Wow, we're the sheep, and he's the shepherd, and he's going to send us out into a world of wolves. This is a creepy metaphor. Do you agree? Last I was home, home on the range, those things, wolves, ate sheep. Jesus says that we are the light to the nations. We are now the Israel mission. That means as a community, we have to think globally and not just personally. And in Acts 1.8, we read that we are his witness people. We are the ones now doing and speaking what he is doing and speaking. He works in and through us. Quite the job, don't you think? Well, what's the job in Matthew 16, 18? He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against his ecclesia. Now, the gates 
are both not only where you get shut into death, but another image of the gates was in the ancient world. It was oftentimes in, in the ancient world that the, the, the leadership of the community would meet at the gates because that was the crossing place, usually a larger plaza. And they could meet there and they would plot out the intense purposes and future goals of the, the, of the town or the city. And so it was a place of, of, of plotting and planning the intents of the place. Jesus assures us that the purposes, the plottings, the planting, the, the planning rather of hell will not overcome his people group. That death will not overcome our lives. Even if we die, as the Lord himself said, yet we will live. But in the day-to-day, what I really have to have interaction with, what I really am in spiritual conflict with, according to Jesus' words here, is the intents of hell. The intents of hell, which is to strive for autonomy against God. The intent and purpose of hell, which is to take power and glory from God, to steal it and then use it in ways that are inappropriate. The plottings in the plan of bringing a lasting and withering death instead of a flourishing life. This is the way of what Jesus says is the kingdom of darkness over against the kingdom of God. And so, who are we? We are those who are in this battle. The image actually is the image of an army assaulting a city. And the army is his ecclesia. So it's a very aggressive picture. And the defenses, the gates of hell will not prevail against the assault, will not stand and be able to withstand the influence and power and light, etc., of his ecclesia. So I have to think of myself that I'm like a soldier in the army of Jesus and that I'm to be an aggressor in the world that I live in. Now, soldier and aggressor in religion right now is not a pretty picture, is it? You know, probably isn't ever a pretty picture unless you understand Jesus well enough to know that we're to be aggressive the way he was. And Jesus was aggressive. He comes into our world with intention. He's other-oriented. He's always initiating. He's always speaking into the situation. He's aggressive in his compassion. He's aggressive in his love. He's aggressive in his truth. He's not sitting around waiting for those who are trapped in the kingdom of darkness to come to him. He comes into the world on mission toward us. And this is the kind of people he says he's going to build. He's going to build a Jesus place that's aggressors, not simply responders. And we're to be like the creator, the one who built us. We're to be other-oriented. We're to be aggressive activists, moved by the love of God and love for others. Now, this aggressiveness isn't fueled by hate, but by his love. It isn't fueled by self-protection, that's usually the way of nations, but instead in confidence that we're already shaped and embedded in his love. The controlling power is to be self-giving love. And because of this, the aggressiveness of the maturing community of Jesus, it won't be a rude community. It won't be a demeaning community. 
When it talks about the problem of sin, it'll know it's in that problem and being redeemed from it. It will speak with hope and compassion and want to see people restored to their full person in God, not demeaning them because of the way sin racks their minds or hearts or bodies. It means that our life together and toward the world won't be rooted in human pride and arrogance. We won't cockily say, I've read the end, we win. Ha ha! But it will be instead rooted in a sense of the gentle and patient and firm and long-suffering love of Christ. And it will be truthful. But it will be truthful to redeem, not truthful so as to condemn. You know, for many years, as I've taught these kinds of things to students in different ways, uh, one thing that really grabbed my head, it was at that sheep picture. And so one day I was sitting there and I was writing and reading, and this wonderfully ridiculous oxymoron came to mind. You know, sometimes you've got to get the metaphorical picture in your head. What are we? We are Jesus' agape attack sheep. Now go to the next one. I like it even better. <laughs> if nothing that I say today sticks in your mind about how different you and the community of Jesus at Hillcrest is to be, what we are to be, it's this ridiculous picture. We are God's agape attack sheep. Doing what he began to do and to teach. Just leave that up there. Just let it burn into their conscience. So, we need to be reminded of these things, don't we? Some questions I think you could ask yourself this week. I want to ask myself, Jesus, do I take your community as seriously as you do? Do I think the community is indispensable for your purposes in the world? Do I think being part of the community of Jesus of Greater Bellingham, localized at Hillcrest Chapel, and in our small groups, etc., do I think this is significant outside of just what I need, but for the sake of the world? We could ask ourselves this week, how do I talk about the community? Now, the tongue is the most unruly member, so expect some needing to repent for each of us, right? Right? How do I talk and think about you? About this thing called Hillcrest. And is this the voice of Jesus running around my head? Is this how Jesus would speak? You know, at times he says, I know these things about you. This good, this good, this good, this good. A good thing to do this week would go to read the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation where Jesus talks about his communities. And sometimes he does say, I have this against you. You're not this way. And I am. And so I want you to change 
and shape yourself to what I am doing in the world. I need to ask myself, and I hope you'll ask yourself, am I embedded in Jesus' vision for the church or my own? Because if, in fact, 2015 is to be a growing year of maturity for us as a people group here in this building and and beyond, in our small groups, etc., If we are going to be more like him, more mature, we will need to shape our minds and our thoughts and our deeds to him. And if we do that, his Abba will be glorified. So to God be the glory. Let's keep growing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, you, uh, you search our hearts so that you can free them to the glory of your love. You search our minds and hearts so that the things that we would speak and do would reflect the glory of your love. You speak truth to us, and you've done it gently and patiently for some of us for many, many years, others just getting started. But you are a truth teller, and you do it, I think you do it so we could know life, and that we could know it and have it flourish. And in that, it would bring glory to your Abba. And so work amongst our minds and hearts, Jesus, both when we're together and when we're scattered. And help us be your ecclesia. Indeed, make us your lambs who are in the world aggressively committed to your purposes. We ask this in our love and worship of you. Amen.